you're on Global Chat Radio, the multicultural voice of Western Australia. And today I'm once again talking with Kimei Kong, who's in Washington, D.C., on her topic of cabbages and kings. So welcome. Hi, um, it's me again, Kimei Kong. At our most recent recording session, I don't know how I thought I could stop talking about the first king of Bagan, Anorata, the acknowledged founder of the Burman nation, and go through his son, Chansitba, and his great-grandson, Alangsibu, all in just 30 minutes. Of course, I can't. Each of these kings did many noteworthy things. Each reigned about three decades each, not to mention the love affairs and the murders. So I had some major um, achievements. He came to the throne after killing Sokote with a spear in Sungil combat on horseback. Sokote plunged off the cliff, horse tack and all. Anorata asked his father, then, then many years in the monkhood, to take the throne, but Kunso Jongbyu declined. After Anorata's coronation, he consolidated what are now Mandalay, Metila, Minjan, Chause, Yemedin, Magui, Sagain, Qatar, Bakoku, and Mimbu. These are all in the northern half of Burma. Mandalay is now the second largest city in Burma, and it has had a lot of Chinese influence in the last 30 years. Uh, Metila is the last city on the plains before the railway line, which was built during the British colonial period, bends due east and heads for the Shan Hills. It's around Big Metila Lake. My late cousin, Kotu, which is his uh, home name, nickname, he was trained in tank warfare at Fort, Fort Knox in Kentucky, right in the United States. And he was head of the tank corps in Metila. So when we drove up to the Shan Hills, which are nice and cool, we used to stop in his, uh, in his uh, camp. Also, my grandmother grew up in Nianjan or Horses Corral in that general area. And grandmother saw the last Burmese king being taken away to India by the British in 1886. I just wanted to add these little uh, anecdotes so it doesn't feel to you just like a, a list of exotic names. I haven't been to the other places, but it is interesting that the current hunter or SAC, SAC SAC, is facing its steepest resistance right now as we speak in Mandalay, Magui, and Sakai. So nobody ever tried to tell me history does not matter. It really matters. Anorata ascended the throne in 1044 and handled economics and military strength first. To establish a firm economic base, he channeled the waters of three rivers, the Mingye, Panlang, and Samoan rivers, and built canals and weirs, and built the canals and weirs of Chaose, which are still in use today. I went with my father around 1953 or so to Mandalay, 
Mendeley's a guy or Chelsea, the weirs are not very deep. Uh, they only look to be about uh, six to 12 inches deep and not very broad, but, <laughs> excuse me, but are cemented on the sides. I'm not sure if the cement is a modern addition or not. In this way, Anarta created Chausse, the rice granary of central Burma. The saying goes, Nyama sa Chausse ga. Nyama begins with Chausse. And this whole area is the rice basket of Burma and is called Le Duin, or the rice fields. And among the notable things Anarta did was to have all the yar or farmland graded by type of crop and productivity, as well as tax potential. The last time we spoke, I said that William the Conqueror was a contemporary of Anorita. And even more surprising, though they probably would have not, not have known, though they probably would not have known of the existence of each other, William as a conqueror had the lands of Britain graded and tabulated too. I find that just amazing. Today's scholars have discovered that the Doomsday Book was originally written uh, as the Doomsday Book. Uh, the spelling was D-O-M-E. And doom was an old English word for law. So when the sentence was passed, you quote unquote met your doom. This handwritten ledger is kept at the UK National Archives at Kew in Richmond, not in central London as I, as I expected. And another small, tiny personal footnote. We lived in Richmond when I was a child about, of about five. Uh, so Kime, it's, as you say, a very interesting fact that these two leaders, contemporaries, both recognised the need to categorise and to um, establish a, a system of taxing people, even though they, as you say, wouldn't have known each other and were thousands of miles apart. So, so, yeah. Yes, it is. It really is. I mean, and, you know, developed at about the same time within the same century, even the same uh, half century. So when the economy was uh, on a firm footing with the rice fields in place and taxation monies flowing in, Anorita tackled military matters. So it's important to note that Anorita, uh, rightfully credited as the father of a nation, was not only a political military and strategic genius, but he also had a strong sense of self and what constituted a great nation. He had what we call vision. And I'll talk more on that when I talk about his son, Jansita. Uh, there were no model empires close at hand that he could study. He might have heard legends of Ashoka, uh, Atoka Minji in Burmese, who reigned from 268 to 232 BC, over a thousand years before his time, from the Indian Brahmins, traders, crafts, craftspeople, and architects that he surely must have had contact with. Also like Genghis Khan, 
in the in the 13th century who lived much later in the 13th century anorita ran a meritocracy Genghis was noted for his top general Subadai, who mapped out a campaign on a scouting trip around the Caspian Sea into Europe. And it took months and months, and he went on his own with a small, small contingent of troops. Um, but eventually, um, Subadai was able to launch a campaign after Genghis had died with Genghis's grandsons, uh, which resulted in successful invasions of Hungary, Russia, and Poland. And more than that, he did it in, in the middle of winter. So that's how they took Moscow by surprise. Yeah, in, so, in, interest, interesting, isn't it, that they undertook this military campaign during the winter and successfully captured Moscow, whereas sort of 700 years later when the, um, during the Second World War, the one thing that stopped the Germans capturing Moscow was the, was the weather. So it's a, um, maybe they had better technology back in the, uh, uh, the days of the Khans. Yes, uh, the Subodai was a genius also, and he uh, his uh, messaging system called the YAM, Y-A-M, YAM, uh, and his scouts and so on, and his records and even his maps must have been pretty good because they went in four, four uh, large contingents. Um, with the four major grandsons from several different fathers. And uh, especially the battle uh, in Poland, uh, then they all came together on the same day, almost the same hour, which to me is just incredible for that time and age. So these men were known as the four dogs of Genghis. And uh, the secret history of the Mongols, which was a secret journal written only for Genghis's family. Uh, this is what the secret history says. Of course, they would be superheroes, you know. The four dogs of Temujin. Temujin was Genghis's uh, childhood name. The four dogs have four heads of brass, their jaws are like scissors, their tongues like piercing awls, their heads are iron, their whipping tails swords. On the day of battle, they devour enemy flesh. Behold, they are now unleashed and they slobber at the mouth with glee. So these four were Jebi, uh, also called the arrow. And how uh, Genghis first met him was Jebe was a member of an enemy tribe and shot, uh, shot uh, Genghis and hit him in the throat. And somehow Genghis survived the night and made uh, Jebe one of his um, generals. And then there was another Kublar, uh, of course, not Kublai Khan, uh, his grandson. And then there was Jelme and Subadai. And the last two were 
sons of a blacksmith. So they were just uh, run-of-the-mill soldiers, but they rose in the ranks at once. Um, and I said a little about the secret history uh, being the history of the, the royal family, Genghis's family, the Bojigins. And it was written probably by uh, his youngest brother, Tolu, who was the only literate one. Genghis himself could not read or write, uh, but he did all this. So then um, the Yuan dynasty established by Kublai Khan, who by that time had um, the 13th century, who by that time had um, conquered China. Um, when Bagan fell in the 13th century, when Bagan finally fell, I'm running a bit ahead of myself here, but you know, I need to connect it up. Uh, when Bagan finally fell, it was a Kublai Khan had a Muslim governor of Yunnan, and uh, this man uh, invaded Bagan and, and uh, finished off the Bagan dynasty for good. So the secret history of the Mongols was lost for a long time, and then it was rediscovered, and it was written in uh, Mandarin script. So it's like me. Uh, writing a Burmese sentence, like for instance, using English or Roman alphabets. And then the secret history was uh, rediscovered quite uh, recently and then translated again, because it was uh, the language, original language was a uh, Turkish uh, Uyghur. Uyghur Turkish language that the Mongols used. So, you know, and that was written in the Mandarin script. So it was quite, uh, and it was all old. So it's not, was, couldn't have been very easy to translate. So let's switch back to Anoratar and his key generals. So uh, of course his lead general was his son, Jansitta, the last soldier standing. Then there was Nyang Upi or the great swimmer, and Ngatuyu or the toddy palm climber, Ngalong Lepe, the farmer, and Bjata. And Bjata is very interesting because he's the first Burmese Muslim or the first uh, Arab Muslim who appears in the chronicles and the legends of Burma. And Bjata. Uh, was most likely an Arab seaman shipwrecked uh, on the seacoast. And his sons, who took Burmese names, they were called Shri Pienji and Shri Pienye, which translates as uh, brother inferior gold, the elder, and inferior gold, the younger. Uh, and uh, I think there's a touch of racism here because why should they be called inferior gold, you know? Uh, probably because they were from a just uh, another race. Do, do, do you think, Kimo, that it might have related to their skin colouring, which may have been um, slightly paler than the Burmese? Excuse me. Do you think that the um, their skin colouring may have been lighter than that of the? Uh, people who were born in Burma and the 
So there was oh, sort yes. of an inferior oh, yes. gold um, A few years ago, when the uh, Rohingya crisis was at its peak, uh, I did a presentation at the village center near here. And uh, of course, I had to do some research for that. But uh, actually, an Israeli diplomat uh, uh, wrote a, a, a thesis on the origins of the Burmese Muslims. And uh, contrary to what the military regime has been saying, uh, these people have been in what the territory that's now called uh, Burma, the Western coast um, and uh, Bengal or, or Bangladesh um, for thousands of years, at least since the 10th century. And they probably came uh, on dhows or uh, ships, sailing boats, um, and they did trading. And the Arabs, in fact, discovered the monsoon winds. So they knew about the uh, south, uh, southwest monsoon and the northeast monsoon. So they'd catch the southwest out towards Burma and Southeast Asia, and then they'd wait there, <laughs> maybe marry and have children and have a second family in Southeast Asia. And then they'd go back for their trading on the winds that came offshore from the Northeast. So they're much older, very much older than um, the British Empire or the, or the borderlines that, um, that uh, the British drew. So uh, I have to say something about borderlines here too, because in the old days, there were no borderlines. They had what are called mandala or centers of power and the power was supposed to radiate out. So if you were between two city states, you paid here as well as there, you know, you paid taxes both sides, but maybe you paid less when you paid two places to kings. So that uh, when I helped uh, Columbia University do this first um, conference uh, on uh, the Rohingya, um, I suggested about uh, five or six people in a, a panel of uh, 12. And then Columbia was so kind as to uh, fly all these people in. Uh, but uh, one person I didn't um, invite because I didn't know him at the time. I knew of him, but didn't know him, was uh, Nobel laureate uh, Amartya Sen. Uh, A.K. Sen is very, know, very well known in the economics world. And Sen, uh, as a child, grew up in Mandalay, um, Burma. So what uh, Professor Sen said, and I remember this distinctly was that um, the Rohingya had the borders, the border lines drawn between them uh, rather than that they came in from across the border as the present hunter keeps claiming, see? So they're long, long inhabitants of this area uh, and longer than me, longer than anyone I know. Um, who can only maybe trace our families back three generations. Um, so that they, 
really have a right to where, where they have been uh, living all this time. But unfortunately, they've been pushed out to sea and have, had, and have been having a terrible time. So I forget what I was going to say, but um, the, you see the Arakan Strip is very, very narrow. It can't be more than 50 miles, the coastal strip. And then you get to the Arakan Yoma or mountain range. So the present regime has a uh, big uh, petroleum and gas pipeline that starts there and then runs all the way northeast to Kuming in Yunnan. And we'll be talking about Yunnan pretty soon also. Mm. But let's now so come back. I need now. to get back. I yes. need to get back to Florida. Yes. yes. So uh, just let me get back to his uh, great four great generals. So Nyangupi, uh, it, it said, of course, they're the legendary strongmen now. He was so strong, uh, such a strong swimmer that he could run down the Irrawaddy's banks at Nyangu and swim across the Irrawaddy. And then not even touching his feet to the shore, he could swim back and still have the strength to run up the bank, uh, the sand dune at uh, Nyangu again. Uh, incidentally, here I go again. Um, a famous Burmese sing, uh, a swimmer, uh, objected to the present regime by raising three fingers at the, con um, at the um, Olympics or before the meets before. And, um, uh, but he's not a Burmese citizen per se. So he's all right. So this Nyangupi, uh, Anorita's friend. Um, so, sorry, okay. before, before you go on from there, you said he swam across the Irrawaddy and back again. What sort yes. of distance? What sort of That's distance? what the chronicles say. <laughs> I don't know how wide the Irrawaddy was at that time. Now that was... it's it's probably wider. It's about a mile wide now, but then it was probably uh, narrower. Well, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. He swam the two miles. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then uh, Nyaupi. Uh, descendants became very uh, distinguished, so I won't go into them now because uh, uh, they were a whole line, and um, uh, including Yaza Tenjan, who was the chief minister of three kings uh, before the final fall of uh, Bagan. Uh, for this part, uh, there's a magnificent novel by a British author named Maurice Collis. Uh, the title of the novel is She Was a Queen. And um, the queen in question was uh, the, the queen of the last king who was very weak and was, uh, and is usually called uh, in derogatory terms, derogatory terms, the king who ran away from the, Burm uh, the Mongols, the, uh, Teyok means Chinese. So that was the first strong man. And then we had the toddy palm climber. And Ngatweyu was a toddy palm climber and tapper. 
And these toddy palms have to be climbed and the stem of the blossoms uh, tapped for the juice or like you tap for maple syrup uh, before noon each day because after noon the sap ferments and it becomes sour and it changes into alcohol. So for it to be useful to be boiled into palm sugar, which is very uh, a very important uh, source of sugar uh, in uh, central Burma or in the whole of Burma, uh, then he had to do this fast. So Ngatweyu was supposed to have been able to climb a thousand palms and tap them and bring the sap down um, uh, before noon each day. Of course, these are exaggerations, but we like these exaggerations, right? In some sense, we need it. Ngalonglepe um, was a farmer from the Pogba region, from near the extinct uh, volcano. And he could plow a large scale farm by driving 60 head of um, oxen. And he was later knighted by Anorata. And uh, he's the iconic strongman. And even his horse had a beautiful name named uh, Lemo Dekal, which means strong, supreme, heavy rain and wind. So I think that's just a lovely name. <laughs> it could be the name of a general or one of the PDF who are fighting the hunter right now. With a name like that, you hope he had a nickname because it would take you all day to say, whoa, horse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, the kings had very long titles, like a, a paragraph long, which I'm not going to even try to read. And also they were in Pali. So we had to have to talk a bit about uh, Anorata and religion. So at the time he came to the throne, uh, people were still worshiping uh, dragon images or nuts or spirits. And there was a corrupted uh, cult of Buddhism called the Ari, A-R-I. Um, and these uh, pseudo monks uh, ate evening meals and drank alcohol and had women, uh, unlike the monks of the true Buddhist Theravada or elder school. Uh, the cucumber king, for instance, worshipped uh, dragon images. But at this time, uh, a Theravada monk named Shin Arahan came to Bagan from the Moon Kingdom of the Tone in the south. Uh, the Tone is at the mouth of the Selween River. Selween is the longest river, which starts way up in Tibet and then comes straight down and enters the sea at this small town called the Tone in Burma. So Shin Arahan told Anorata that the, the Tone King Manuhar had the Tribhidaka or three baskets of the law, the Buddhist, Buddhist uh, scriptures. And Anorata, to my mind, had a very controlling and uh, acquisitive nature. 
on the one hand, he was very curious and intelligent, which was a good thing. But, you know, whatever he heard about, he had to have. And by that time, his uh, army was uh, all trained and ready and well-funded. And he probably wanted to flex some military muscle. So in a recent article, uh, Dr. Paul Chambers, uh, who's based in Thailand, has written that all the recent, I mean, relatively recent uh, coups, coup d'etat in Burma and Thailand have all been motivated by economics. Uh, that's very interesting in the light of what we are talking about. So when Shin Arahan told Anorata about the Tribedika or three baskets of the law that Manuha, the Mun King had, uh, Anorata got his forces together at once and marched to the Tatong and conquered it and brought the scriptures back together with the Mun King, his wife, his queen, the royal family, all the aristocrats and craftspeople as prisoners of war. So this could have been uh, thousands of people. And before he launched the invasion, he sent ambassadors as is the custom and asked politely. And when Manuha refused, he went to war. Uh, it's always like that in Southeast Asian history until the 19th century, even until the British. It's, it's like a choreographed ballet. You know, they go through the motions of talking. And uh, Manuhar and his family became temple or pagoda slaves, but he probably was able to bring some artisans and coins and gems because he was able to build a small temple uh, now called the Manuhar Temple. And this is noteworthy because if you see the photographs, the, the uh, Buddha image is humongous, it's huge, and it's not even proportionate or very beautiful. Uh, it's just large, very large, and it's sitting there in a very small chamber, uh, the head of the Buddha almost touching the ceiling and uh, architects have made uh, cross-sectional drawings of this. And there you can see that, yes, the head of the Buddha alone is about half the height of the chamber and uh, the uh, Buddha's uh, 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 head, the top of his head is uh, in this cross-section touching the ceiling itself. And, so in and one... And, and sorry, ju just for the benefit of the, the listeners, um, these images that Kima is just referring to will be up on our Facebook page uh, when we are promoting this program. So, um. Yes, uh, I, I've been using these, this PowerPoint to put in the uh, images as little thumbnails to help me along because I'm a visual sort of person and for my records, so, but I do realize you can't see these um, uh, photographs or drawings, but I can describe them for you, uh, and I'm trying to do that now. So in one generation after one war, Manuhar and the entire Mon royal family and the entire aristocracy 
sunk to the lowest stratum of temple slaves, dedicated to serve the temples forever. So it's not just Manuhar and his family, it's his son and his you know, grandson and so on, and all the way down the line. But nobody has ever uh, tested DNA or the DNA of the ancient kings no longer exists and the family records are not well kept. But I'm sure you would find, uh, the researchers would find uh, DNA groupings, you know, in different places. So uh, when he got these uh, relics back from the toe, uh, Anorita wanted to build temples to enshrine them. And to do this, he had his uh, white elephant who was all decked out in this uh, elephant regalia. And uh, the places where the elephant stopped, he built the four initial uh, chedi or stupas. Stupas are conical shaped and they're solid. They're bell shaped and they're solid. You cannot go inside them. So you have to worship them from outside. Uh, temples are like buildings, they're rectangular, they're big, and you can go in and walk around inside. Uh, some have two or three stories. So, but these uh, four temples, for uh, stupors were the uh, beginning of the thousands of uh, temples and shrines that exist in Pagan today. So the first place where the elephant stopped, Manorata um, built an elegant little uh, shrine, not very big looking from this photograph. I've never been there, but I think it's a super elegant design. Um, and it's kind of cylindrical and then it tapers up suddenly. Uh, and he named it the Lokananda or joy of the world. And this was the very first one. So they say the Shri Zigong, which uh, Anorata did not finish, uh, Chan Sitai's son had to finish it um, when Anorata died. Uh, it's said to be based on the Lokananda, but it's, uh, bigger, fatter. The dome shape is uh, more full, more like the Shredagong in Rangoon. Uh, I'm really sorry uh, my listeners, our listeners can't see these uh, images, but maybe one day the uh, I can put up the um, PowerPoint. Well, we, we will be putting the PowerPoint up on our Facebook page when we are uh, promoting the program. So people will be able yeah. to see them coming. Yeah, I, I think uh, because the PowerPoint, I put in a lot of uh, 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 links to YouTube videos and so on of my sources and uh, and also these images, you know, uh, unless you see the shapes uh, and the actual photographs, it's hard to, even if you go there, it's hard to see how they are related uh, stylistically. So um, Anorata actually only got one tooth of the Buddha, one relic tooth, a molar or something of the uh, uh, historical Buddha. Uh, and he got it from Ceylon, the king of Ceylon, Sri Lanka. 
And the king didn't really want to give it to him, but uh, under threat of war, uh, the uh, Ceylon king uh, told him that somehow the the uh, uh, the tooth had multiplied during the night, <laughs> and he could give him four or something like that. That's the oral history. So uh, by the time this these relics, this very small relic, got to um, Pagan, um, apparently it had become four four teeth. So what I want to say is there's an oral tradition that the Buddha was a giant and you know he was leagues and leagues tall and so on. And that's not historical. And uh, big, big uh, footprint shaped stones are said to be uh, footprints that he left and so on. And that's, that's not uh, correct, accurate, historically accurate either. But uh, even today, uh, when I was able to visit back uh, in Southeast Asia, and I never went back to Burma, but I went to Thailand, and uh, some of my friends and relatives there are very pious, and they wanted to see these so-called relics of the Buddha and the Thai community, not the Burmese Thai community, but the Thai, Thai community ha had a big festival grounds built, and we went to see it. And coming with me was one of the young activist women. So uh, when she actually saw the supposed uh, tooth of the Buddha, she went, ah, oh, you know, it, it can't be, you know, auntie, how can it be? You know, it's like the size of a coconut. And it probably was a, a mammoth tooth or something like that. Um, but, um, uh, I had to tell her among these, all these people who were praying and had their hands clasped, that that's a matter of belief. You know, it's not a matter of science or, or was it historically accurate or not. Uh, it's like the shroud, uh, the shroud that Christ was wrapped in. Maybe it is the actual shroud, maybe it isn't, but many people believe so. so. Um, and we don't want to uh, uh, take them to court about that, you know. So the other two pagodas, uh, the other three uh, pagodas that uh, Anorita built uh, was um, a very similar in design to the two that I just spoke about. Uh, were on hills and one was on the other side of the river. So all this story about the great swimmer and Anorta building a, a, a pagoda, a memorial pagoda on the western bank of the Irrawaddy, you know. Uh, this speaks to me as saying that there was quite a, a lot of traffic uh, across the river, unlike today when where there are only like two bridges up there, uh, the old Arva Bridge and the new Arva Bridge. Uh, and um, so the river might have been uh, narrower then. Also, 
the river was more in use because of, of course, there were no roads or railways uh, at that time. So in this economic sense, it's very interesting. Uh, and the other one is called Tuyen Town Pagoda and it's uh, near, near Pagan, between Pagan and Mount Pogbar. And uh, I've never been to Tuyen Town either and just seen recent photographs. So uh, I really regret that I didn't have spent much time there. But uh, recently while I was researching this video, um, I saw, uh, a beautiful video documentary made just last year in 2020 before the virus by uh, a Singaporean uh, filmmaker named Peter Lee. And Peter shot uh, a modern dance, a folk dance uh, in, in the Bagan villages uh, where two men danced inside a, a wooden and cloth puppet white elephant. They danced uh, this search for the place to build the pagodas. And I thought this was quite beautiful because the way the uh, cloth was embroidered and the colors and the uh, elephant movements were really nice. So it reminded me of a barong or yak dance that I saw in Bali, uh, where I understand the, the, the men who dance the two front legs are paid more because they need to do more. They need to lead the dance, you know, and they're more talented. So that's a little um, thing that I wish you could see. Uh, so after he'd got the toe, after he conquered the toe, uh, Anoratar again heard that the king of Gandalarit, the chieftain of Gandalarit, um, which has been identified as uh, Yunnan, Kuming, near Kuming in Yunnan, uh, had more Buddha relics. So off he went to conquer Gandalarit also. So Gandalarit is said to be named after the famous Gandhara, uh, which was uh, in the first century, part of the first century uh, Kanishka's Kushan uh, Buddhist empire, which ran all the way to Pakistan through Afghanistan and so on. And uh, Gandhara is near present day Peshawar in Pakistan. So if it's not, uh, if it's safe, one could go there, I guess, uh, but I've never been. And I only saw a photograph, which my father's friend, artist friend, Usang Wen, uh, used to show us how to model and cast a sculpted head based on this Gandhara Buddha. They're really beautiful because they have these Grecian features and they're carved of uh, stone, gray stone. So Kandalarit also is not a mythical place. It really did exist, exist. And in 2017, some researchers found uh, near Lake Erhai in Yunnan. And one of the most famous statues of the Buddha is a uh, standing Buddha 
uh, carved in the Gandhara style. And the Buddha is not too tall uh, in this picture, but he's uh, wearing flowing robes uh, rendered in the Greek style. So here we have our last little romantic story. Um, uh, on his return home from Gandalarit, the Morshan Sobwa gave Anorata his daughter, either his daughter or his sister. And her name was Somontla. So uh, if you look on Wikipedia and so on, it's spelled as Mon, M-O-N, Mon. But I didn't want uh, you all to confuse her with the Mon ethnic group because she was of the Shan ethnic group, not Mon at all. So Somontla, uh, or if you say say it in a Shan accent, Somontla. Uh, means like extremely beautiful and saw or saw is it's a title not a name so she was miss extremely beautiful so the lady Somunla was very beautiful and uh, there's um, a modern sculptor who probably made this I forget his name but I met him on Facebook um, but this sculpture of Somunla is really lifelike. It really looks like it's a real person standing there. And uh, her adherents uh, worship her uh, as a nut or spirit who died a green or violent death, because that's what uh, spirit worshippers believe. Uh, if you didn't die a peaceful death, uh, I guess the theory is you didn't have time to make your peace with the world and therefore you keep coming back. Uh, and she's depicted as a beautiful woman with the famous uh, Shan fair skin and black eyes, black eyebrows. And she's wearing a Shan headdress. The sculpt, uh, sculpture is wearing a Shan headdress of woven uh, cloth and a white jacket, a modern white jacket, and a pink stole, and a modern pink longi or sarong. And her hands are clasped in a gesture of worship of the Buddha. Also, her forearms are loaded down with strands and strands of white jasmine blossoms. So I was looking at this photograph, and I was trying to see what's underneath those uh, jasmine reeds. And I found she's holding a matching pink leatherette handbag. So I think that's really cute, the way they modernized it. So anyone can uh, relate to Solmon Lao. I have to say, having looked at, the, <laughs> look, look, looked at this uh, image, um, you're right. It comes across as a very, very beautiful young lady. And um, yes, yeah. yes, the Shan ladies and uh, the uh, the woman of Chiang Mai in Thailand, because Chiang Mai was also under uh, uh, Burmese influence for many centuries. Uh, uh, and also the Shan people and the Thai or Thai people, Thai Shan, uh, they're related and they can understand each other's language right now today. So that actually the Salmon La it looks exactly like one of my co-workers did about 20 years ago. Uh, and all these old kings, uh, Anorata, 
allows you to be in now. Um, they were old by the time the their empires were built, and they started their active military life quite young as teenager as teenagers of sixteen or so. And all the chronicles say they loved and adored their young tribute or hostage wives. Most were hostages, you know. Um, but uh, there were too many women in the harem. And so Somun La wore relics of the Buddha embedded in her earplugs or earrings. And uh, people don't usually take off their ear ornaments at night. So at night, these relics are supposed to have Yang Jido Konyude or let out joyous magical rays. And the other woman accused her of being a Soma or witch. But before then, uh, Anorata had raised her to the highest position among his four major queens, north, south, east, and west. So she was queen of the Northern Palace when um, uh, she fell victim to the harem politics. So finally, Somunla uh, decided that um, she couldn't stay there anymore. She'd go home to her village and her father. So she left. And uh, the legend is, uh, I, I relate these stories because they're just so beautiful and they live forever and they're easy to remember. So at a place uh, called Salient Village in the Morshan State, one of her earplugs fell into the stream. Then a flock of golden sparrows flew around the spot where the ornament fell. Uh, and this stream is called Nadangja, the place, the stream where her uh, earplugs fell. Uh, there she built a pagoda facing east towards her homeland. Um, but somebody went and told Anorata See, they had uh, Dalan or snitches uh, even then and spies and somebody uh, went and told Anorta that um, she built the, her, her temple facing east, not west where Bagan was located. So Anorta sent his troops to check and see which way the temple was facing and if it faces west to kill her. So Somunla heard the news. I, I just think this is like lovely. So when Somunla heard the news, she used her magical emerald shawl <laughs> to move the uh, pagoda so that uh, it faced like uh, neutrally, you know, exactly uh, between east and west. So I guess it faced south. But the pagoda was named Shui Sayan. And Shui Sayan means uh, encircled by golden sparrows. And I guess it's still there. So today, the people of Sipor or Tibor State or Taini or Senwi State claim Somonla as their very own national treasure and true daughter. And I have a modern tragedy and romance whose victims, uh, the royal family of Sipor, are still alive. 
but it's a very sad story and it'll take a long time to tell it. So I will stop right here. Uh, about Anorita's death, there's a great mystery. Uh, we just read in the history books at school that a nut or spirit uh, entered a wild buffalo and gored him and he died, but his body was not recovered. So actually a modern Western author, ha uh, a writer of uh, spy stories, uh, whodunits has written a book um, whose name I can't remember quite now, right now, but uh, Anorita of course had many enemies. So it, it could be a Mon prisoner of war. It could be a nut worshiper. Uh, it could be someone who worshiped the Ari uh, corrupt Buddhist cult. It could be a Shan prisoner of war. It could be anyone. And with that, I bid you peace and goodbye for this week. Just before you go, uh, Kime, um, we're about to play a little piece of music. Um, do you just want to tell us a little bit about this? Um... Nabucco was um, uh, composed by Verdi at a very hard, hard, difficult time in his life. And at the turn of the century, uh, medical science, uh, of course, was not as advanced as it is now. And his wife and two small children uh, died, had just died. And like many artists, he vowed to give up writing music. But then he signed a contract with the opera house La Scala to write another opera. And the director Morelli uh, forced the libretto into his hands. And when he got home, Verdi opened the libretto and he saw the words, uh, va pensiero, va pensiero, I don't know if I'm uh, pronouncing it correctly. Um, and when he saw the phrase, uh, he heard the music in his head. And of course he wrote it down and the rest is history. At the first performance, instead the stagehand started, got so excited and this um, music, and these words spoke to them so strongly that carpenters and the stage heads started to beat time on the floor with their chisels and other tools. And what the words are saying is, fly my thoughts on wings of gold, go settle upon the slopes and the hills where soft and mild the sweet airs of my late native land smell fragrant. So this is all about homeland and everything. So I thought this, it would be lovely to put this music in. And, and it seems to me that maybe we're referring to the golden sparrows that we just heard about. It could be, it could be wings of gold. Yes, it could be. Let's say it, it, it does. And we're all exiles, all refugees from somewhere. It doesn't matter. Um, if the reality of the present is different one from what we imagine or think we remember, we all hold our past in our hearts. Uh, Nabokov said his mother lost everything because they were aristocrats too. And uh, 
Vladimir Nabokov uh, inherited his uncle's estate, acres and acres and a mansion and everything. And he was, uh, and he quote unquote, enjoyed it for about two weeks. And then the October revolution happened and they all had to flee. So Nabokov's mother fled with just one ring. I don't remember the actual stone, but she hid it in a, a talcum powder um, uh, container. And when they got to Berlin, they sold it and lived on that. So what Nabokov said was uh, his mother lost everything uh, during the October Revolution, but she really did not need anything because she remembered everything. So, so Kime, thank you so much for your time again I today. I hope it's not, not so very long, but you know, it. It's fascinating. <laughs> you, yeah, you did, but there's, there's so much to tell. It's such a fascinating story. And, yes. know, and, and I'm sure we're all looking forward to hearing um, more in an upcoming episode. So once again, thank you for your time. Oh, thanks so much.